Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, November 28th, 22. I'm John Podhorts, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Uh, associate editor and author of Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Christine Rosen is out today. So joining us, fan favorite, tech commentary columnist, host of the How Things Work podcast. Do I have that right, Jim? <laughs> How do we fix it? How do we fix it? I think you should call it How Things Work. I'm now There's probably already one of those. Okay. It's like you're, you're like Ronna McDaniel. I'm Ronna Romney McDaniel. I'm now renaming you <laughs> unilaterally. You're no longer Romney. Okay. How, how do we fix it podcast? James B. Meggs. Jim, thanks for joining us again. I'm sorry. Uh, I... <laughs> It's great I dead named your podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it'll survive. Okay. Um, so the big news over the weekend is the most extensive protest uh, in China that the world has seen in decades. Uh, multiple cities, multiple air with you know thousands of miles separating them, um, all seeming to have arisen from an apartment building fire. Uh, that word spread was the result that 10 people died and dozens others were injured because they were uh, COVID locked into the apartment block and unable to leave. We'd heard stories from the beginning of COVID that people who got it were being soldered into their apartments with blowtorches by the uh, by the uh, Chinese authorities to prevent them from going out and spreading things. And uh, and apparently after, you know, we're moving into uh, moving into the fourth year of uh, extreme covid uh, lockdown in China and the populace has apparently had more than enough. Um, it's also comes, as we know, just after the conclusion of the latest party Congress, which was supposed to be the moment that enshrined uh, Xi Jinping's. Uh, historic epic Chinese emperor dictatorship, most powerful leader of the country since Mao, and uh, and and you know had those scenes of uh, his predecessor being frog marched out of the Congress uh, um, and never to be seen again. Really dramatic, horrifying images, and uh, and yet here we have a popular revolt uh, against it. So. Uh, against him and people calling you know protesters calling for his ouster this is of course unbelievably dangerous for them uh abe your 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 thoughts well my first thought to be honest wasn't about uh china exactly um it's more that this struck me as a, a bullet point in, in this um evolving story here about authoritarian regimes uh, we're seeing now, largely sort of in the wake of COVID, but other things, just the general upheaval, authoritarian regimes sort of revealing some degree, varying degrees of weakness, um, at least to, to the extent that significant portions of their populations are, feel feel emboldened enough to protest, uh, protest what's going on. Of course, you know, this is, we see this after, you know, months of, 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 very significant uprisings in 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 um in Iran um Russia since since the since the start and the continued failure and the slog in Ukraine um uh Russians have been have been 
increasingly vocal um, and demonstrative uh, about about um, their their disgust with with Putin. I mean, as always, we never know how many because there's no there's no clear indication in in these societies of of um, it's hard it's hard to get actual figures. Um, but so there's something significant going on here. Uh, it's hard to say what I'm sure it's not uh, a, a a one size fits all uh, situation in all of these countries. Uh, I think the the heaviest lift, um, to my mind, would have to be in China, uh, where where the the sort of machinery of the state is so complete um, and so geared towards um, keeping people in line. Well, I mean, you know, we also had. Here's the thing, like the, every couple of years we have authority, you know, um, populists under authoritarianism, usually, though, not in these cases, following uh, a stolen or fraudulent or defrauding election that rise. Um, we had Venezuela in 2018, maybe, um, you know, where Maduro just basically stole an election. Uh all international observers believe that uh, Guaido won the election. Uh, we recognize him as the legitimately elected president of, of Venezuela. Um, and so we have that we're in this weird nether region. But of course, Maduro still holds on to power. And this is where you have to temper expectations because we have very few examples of hardened authoritarian regimes being toppled by popular by popular protest i mean there's the mubarak regime uh in in egypt in 2011 um that was part of a, a much larger regional ferment that of course failed uh the arab spring um i guess you have tunisia uh, which preceded uh which preceded egypt then but you know we had the we've had these unbelievably heroic uh immensely moving displays of people you know refusing to take it anymore over the course of the 20th century hungary uh hungary czechoslovakia poland in just you know 14 years or tw 12 years excuse me um no excuse me 24 years uh 56 in hungary 68 in czechoslovakia and 1979 1980 in poland um and of course those didn't work uh and led there were you know crackdowns and serious crackdowns so you could say that the poland uh the solidarity uprising in poland was the real fissure moment the real crack uh in the in the in the iron curtain and the warsaw pact uh that 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 was the moment at which the the boulder began rolling down the hill nonetheless can't look at this and say well this is great you know the iranian populace is just going to overthrow the mullahs and then we're going to uh, we're going to get going because that's not what history tells, really. Um, I just want to say on that point, so, uh, Ray Takei has a, a piece called The Second Iranian Revolution with a question. In our, in our magazine, yeah. In, in, in commentary in, uh, I think it was the November issue, I think. Um, and and it's it's interesting for all sorts of reasons. But I, I think his he kind of homes in on this point that for this to um, to turn into um, a kind of effective um, move against the regime, uh, the, the beginnings of actual regime change. Um, it would require, and and he seems to expect, 
the the Iranian military and police to to sort of get too sickened by the prospect of having to fire on the Iranian population. And so when they won't do the work of of the mullahs, um, then then that's the beginning of the end for them in that particular. And that that case. was the story in Egypt, of course, was that the military military refused to refused to do the crackdown in Tahrir Square that uh, that Mubarak uh, wanted, and he was eighty three or eighty four. I mean, there there are parallels to Iran that you have this gerontocratic malocracy that you know it's not clear why. Uh, you know, uh, other than, uh, you know, other than entropy that you would, or, you know, sort of like just that, that which is going on is going on, that you would have these people obeying the dictates of these guys who are going to die at any minute. Nonetheless, Noah. Yeah, nothing, nothing to disagree with and anything that's previously been said. The traditional formulation is the regime survives as long as it possesses uh, both the will and capacity to, uh, uh, deliver violence uh, against its own people. We've seen no indication that Iran doesn't possess that will or capacity, likewise China, more so. Um, but nevertheless, there are uh, instances, exceptions that prove the rule. I suppose you could see some, something that what we're seeing in China evolve into something that's more dangerous to the regime. It is interesting the degree to which uh, our pandemic experience uh, in the 21st century departs so dramatically from our pandemic experience in the early part of the 20th century, um, insofar as the conspiracy theorists are right. Conspiracy theorists saw a lot of these public health efforts justified by those who, who were at one point and may be still possessed of a delusional idea that the thing can be eradicated. But most, I think, especially in the, the developing world in places like China and Iran, uh, view the pandemic as an instrument to preserve and maintain power and to exert control over a rest of population. That's what a lot of people in the West believe they're seeing from their elected officials, um, perhaps to a paranoid degree. It is exactly what we're seeing in uh, in uh, the part of the parts of the world that are less inclined towards classical liberalism. Uh, and for that reason, I don't know if we're going to see them go away ever perhaps it'll ease, but it will be integrated into part of the social contract. It is part of the social contract now in China. And they can't seem they don't seem capable of uh getting away from getting away from it. I think one of the Jim, one of the major reasons why the West uh continues to or has over the past, let's say, 15 years, un misunderstood the Chinese governments or the Communist Party's motivations is that there were all these like order facts on the ground in china incredibly aging population that's going to have to be supported uh you know the one child policy was a disaster in terms of uh, replacement rates and fertility and all of that so there's no workforce to pay for the incredibly aging population they're going to have to liberalize in order to make that possible they're going to have to make uh, people freer in order to have higher productivity uh, because they're going to need this money, and of course they want to grow, and they, it's very important to them to grow. So they also have money for their military, and da da da. So they're going to do things that that will that will hasten that, even if they continue not to want freedom. And Xi completely clearly has a completely different agenda, which is that he tolerates economic growth. He will use economic growth. He likes it to the extent that it doesn't interfere with his. Sovietizing, centralizing, 
unfreedom-ish ambitions. And COVID then proved the perfect storm in some ways. So here we have this thing that could really be a threat to his regime. Let's say if we just accept for like the lab leak hypothesis, like he knows that he knows that this thing escaped from a lab in Wuhan, let's just say. And so he has two choices, one of which is to apologize to the world and to try to make amends and figure out what to do and try to cure things, about it. give everybody all the information so that they can figure out the genome and cure it. Or he can say it didn't happen. He shuts down a, a region of 75 million people almost instantly and starts cracking down in order to stay the international problem. And then, of course, it's just catnip it's for the world economy slowing down anyway uh everyone no one's expecting the supply then suddenly he's also in a position where he can screw up the west by screwing up the supply chains and extend his power over his population which might be getting restive or would have gotten more restive because of what was going on with covid and then you just get addicted to it like you just have this population that's indoors and will leave you alone and then one thing happens one apartment fire happens just like one woman is you know beaten to death for not wearing the hijab correctly and then two different countries explode because it's a it's an inciting incident it's not you know it's an anecdote it's a piece of it's a one little piece of data but it sort of represents people's experiences Nonetheless, G is G, and he's, you know, he's not, he didn't, if he didn't, if he didn't liberalize and figure out what to do because stuff was going on in Wuhan with a, with a, with a world destroying, you know, with a, with a world threatening virus, he's certainly not going to do it because, you know, 50,000 people are rioting in a country of 1.5 billion people. Yeah, I mean, he's had an opportunity or a, a choice uh, over the recent years to liberalize in a way that would allow the economy to keep innovating and growing on par with Western economies. But with that kind of liberalization comes the risk of less control of, you know, the, the growth of democracy movements. I, I, I don't think we in the West understand how the memory of Tiananmen Square, for those who even know it existed, those in power, is, is, so, is such a powerful kind of warning to China's leaders that there were a lot of college students, they were getting liberal educations, they were learning about the world and history, and all of a sudden they were out in the streets protesting. And we can't have that happen again. I think Xi's gamble is we won't allow the kind of liberalization uh, that, that led to Tiananmen Square. The economy is good enough. It, it'll keep humming along. We can still we can keep stealing intellectual property from the West. We don't need the kind of innovation and uh, entrepreneurship uh, here that that is is common in the West. And we have a new set of tools that we can use to to keep people in line. I mean, the you know the. The, the Stasi in East Germany only dreamed of the kind of technological uh, equipment that that China's government has to to monitor everything that happens on social media, to have cameras everywhere that to have facial recognition, gate recognition. I worry that all these brave people out protesting, 
it's like the government's going to know who they are. You know, it's it's not going to be like we saw in previous spasms of these kinds of protests and crackdowns, you know, where this one gets identified, that one gets identified. The government will know who everyone is. Uh, and I think Xi is gambling on the idea that his entire system of of digital control and surveillance will be able to to clean this up when when you know when the protest when the protest die down and he's in he's used covid to intensify that not just you know in the terms of keeping people in lockdown but really extending this whole social credit system and these kind of when we talk about vaccine passports but you know they've got a whole system where if you want to go to a certain event or to school or to work it might be okay everybody needs to be tested to big to show up at the office tomorrow and you've got to go to some center and get tested maybe wait online for a couple of hours to get tested to get this little mark in your book or you know your digital passport on your phone to say yes i was tested within 24 hours that's an extraordinary system of state control over even the simple movement of the population so i i think this idea that you can use all this technology to maintain a level of control over the population that you never had before that's g's gamble i don't know if it'll work long long term but no government has ever had this kind of of power reaching down to the level of the individual citizen the, the theory yeah, briefly sorry john the theory that um was articulated by milton friedman and others um that essentially economic liberalization begets political liberalization uh, wasn't just magical thinking. The idea there is that uh, certain levels of commercial uh, and uh, economic comforts develop a middle class. The, that middle class becomes the central, crucial constituency upon which a regime relies. That middle class ultimately demands more political uh, liberalization in order to realize the gains of its economic liberalization to fully manifest those gains. And then the cycle, you know, continues to a degree that the, the, the stability of the regime is threatened or it engages in profound reforms that change the character of the regime dramatically. Um, that process was arrested after Tiananmen in 89. And we haven't seen it we haven't seen any sort of real, with the exception, I guess, of Hong Kong and the crackdown in Hong Kong, which was put down, we should say. Um, we haven't seen that uh, in China yet. But isn't this COVID regime an abrogation of what the middle class in China has come to expect, what they have come to rely upon? Indeed, what Beijing has been inculcating in them for the last 20, 30 years this idea that you can have all the creature comforts of capitalism as long as you roll over. But you can't have those creature comforts in this current zero COVID regime, especially if it's in perpetuity. Okay, but 2015 marked a sea change in China. So that was the deal until 2015. And then Xi said, from what we can tell, this is all going too far. Like we are, we are five years away from another Tiananmen we are we have been making this social compact and it's not going to hold in part because things are about are going to go down in Hong Kong that could spread to the mainland and so he began to crack down four years before 
five years before the COVID regime was instituted. So there was a, this wasn't a abrupt shift. Freedom was curtailed. Freedom of speech was curtailed. There were, ma- you know, um, there were mass arrests. Uh, the dissidents were basically choked off. Um, you know, uh, it was, it was just as you sort of, said, it's been accompanied yeah. by a re-Sovietization of the Chinese economy and the more right. centralization of the. But that's uh, the ultimate point is that the deal is we liberalize and then everybody gets wealthier. The government has more money to do what it wants and to build up the military. You're all fine. Just stop asking for political freedom. You know, don't ask for political freedom. Don't ask for freedom of speech. But you know, we're we're all gonna like enjoy this together. Remember, your 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 grandparents were in a rice paddy, starving to death. You know that you knew those grandparents. We're we're giving you a better deal. And then Gis thought that the deal was starting, that the that the terms of the deal were starting to be inimical to his political needs and so you have this preceding thing the thing that we you you, jim you mentioned tiananmen square as an example the other example to them is glasnost and perestroika where an effort where gorbachev looking at russia's technological inferiority to the west thought that if he could do a little liberalization and free up the creative capacities of the Russian people and the people in the Soviet empire that he could turn a spigot on and just, but keep the spigot low and the rot was too deep. Like the, the pipes all burst, whatever. And, you know, he was out in, in five years and they're looking at that also as a, as a comparable example of what happens when liberalization ends up fomenting the destruction of a regime, but let's move, uh, you know, let's take a break and we'll hear from our first sponsor. And then when we come back, we can move on to COVID and the COVID rules. There's news and information constantly coming at us from all sides with this barrage of information. It's difficult to stay up to speed with everything that's happening in the world. Whom can you trust to explain what's going on from a perspective that values both faith and freedom? That's where Acton Unwind comes in just as there's no other organization that brings you a perspective that values faith, liberty, and free enterprise like the Acton Institute, there's no other podcast that tackles the issues of the day in quite the same way as Acton Unwind. Every Monday, you'll hear from host Eric Cohn and experts from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty as they take you through the news of the week in a roundtable conversation, breaking down the issues and the stories that matter and demonstrating that the compatibility of faith liberty, and free economic activity in a way that's clear, concise, and entertaining. Whether it's about politics, religion, or culture, you'll get Acton's unique outlook on the world, connecting good intentions with sound economics as we promote a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. To subscribe to Acton Unwind, visit acton.org commentary or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Act and unwind an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. That's acton.org slash commentary to subscribe to the Acton Unwind podcast. Jim, there's some new information that you, you know, wanted to talk about about what 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 new we know. You have been taught writing about the lab leak hypothesis and the amateur. Amateur like makes it sound like it's shoddy and you know bad, but the sort of the the non-governmental and the non-official 
research crew around the world that has been pouring through documents and trying to figure out what's going on in the in the Chinese language materials that have been released thus far, painting a pretty impressionistic portrait that the lab leak is maybe more likely to have happened than not. I don't know how how we would want to characterize it, but but there's more there's more yet. We keep learning more, but you know it's funny, John. You you talk about the uh, the uh, suppression of free inquiry in China. One of the stunning things about the story of the gradual exposure of the possibility of a lab leak is how much official channels in the West, especially in the U.S., worked really hard to suppress and derail this story. And that a lot of what we know about what was going on at the Wuhan Institute of Virology doesn't come from officially sanctioned uh, investigations or from our leading news organizations, but from journalists and, and as you say, g- genuine amateur researchers working kind of on the, on the fringes. And that, I think, is a real indictment of our, of our governmental institutions and, and our public health establishment, as well as the leading lights in, in journalism. But one of these groups is a group called Drastic, kind of self-assembled on the internet. Some of the people in it are expert, are, are working scientists. Many are online researchers. There's a lot of Chinese speakers who were able to look at documents in China and get them translated. And what we're, what we've been finding in recent weeks coming out of some of that research is that there appears to have been some kind of big brouhaha at the Wuhan lab in November of 2019 that the uh, top officials in the Chinese government were involved in. We still don't know what it was, but it would certainly fit a timeline that something really bad happened at that lab that was so serious, it would be as if the White House had to get involved in a problem at a research lab, you know, in Kentucky or something. And, uh, and that that was a the start of almost a preemptive cover up. What if that's true, it means that China knew a lot more about COVID uh, long before they announced it to the world, when they in in mid December, when they announced the discovery of this virus and uh, and assured everybody that it didn't seem to be uh, passing from person to person, the World Health Organization dutifully passed along that completely unfounded assumption that it wasn't really um, that transmissible. That that was all. Those were all lies. They. They were actively working to suppress this virus. They knew about it. And, and, you know, that might fit with other sort of conspiratorial worries, like that the fact that they were buying up all the PPE and, and, and restricting exports of, of equipment that might be useful in places like the U.S. if there was an outbreak of, of such a disease. So this is just one more piece that goes to the, uh, I think, the, the growing evidence concern that in fact the the virus did come from the lab but as you say we still don't know is it 50 50 is it 60 40 uh i don't even i don't as a journalist even have enough knowledge to put a number on it 
but I would guess it's somewhere in that ballpark. I, I certainly lean towards the idea that it came from the lab. And I'm, I think that there's still a concerted effort on the part of some leading figures in our public health world to do everything they can to downplay this possibility because it doesn't just make China and the Wuhan lab look bad. It makes the entire field of high level uh, virology look like a sloppy, dangerous enterprise. Let's uh, let's so the uh, world of uh, let's say not high level virology, but high level public health. We had we have had this kind of farewell tour of the retiring Anthony Fauci. Uh, he was at the he was at the uh, White House press podium last week. Um, he was on Face the Nation on Sunday, um, and he did something very very strange on TV yesterday which is that um, he started to giggle when talking about school closings. Uh, Margaret Brennan said there's a higher risk from COVID. The holidays, it's winter. You know, should schools close again? And Fauci said, I don't know. Uh, maybe they should. But, you know, uh, there are, I don't know if he said corollary costs or he used some term sort of like there are ancillary problems when you close schools. And then he started to giggle. Well, so it, it tells you something about the degree to which Anthony Fauci is a useful figure because the RNC Twitter account has just basically cut up the entire interview and posted clip by clip. Um, so um, Brennan interjects there. And she sees he says, you know, shutting down schools, that was always collateral effects. And she says that's also radioactive. And then he just like busts a gut thinking about how radioactive that, it is. That was what was struck. That's what struck me is he kind of went. He sounded a little like Scooby Doo giggling like he was sort of like he like that. And I, I don't want to, like, make too much of an involuntary behavior on the part of someone as a, some kind of like, aha, you see, you know, Perry Mason, you see the way you just behaved on stand proves that you're guilty. And then the guy goes, right, I did it. You know, <laughs> I don't want to do that. But it had this weird in vino veritas moment, like, hmm. you know, I mean, we've done we've done some things and some people really <laughs> like them. And I kind of. I kind of enjoy that a little bit, you know, it's like I saw the, you know, saw the lamentations of my, you know, saw the lamentations of the women of my enemies. And um, it's a, it was an interesting way to kind of go out, you know, that that an ordinary person would say, look, these were terrible choices that we had to make and we made them. And I go to I, I go to sleep every night feeling totally confirm that what we did was the right thing but we understand that you know this this was a grave hardship on many people Speak, and but, you know more. i don't know that's not hard to say no and it wasn't even the most egregious feature of this interview in in my uh re respect so he's, he's talking about china and uh the extent to which you know this lab leak theory is is justified or not he says he has an open mind about it um which is new um, and then he also says he blames the, the Trump administration, says, quote, the anti-China approach that clearly the Trump administration had right from the very beginning um, justif is justifies the Communist Party's um, hostility to international uh, inspections and uh, just trepidation about uh, 
about in, investigating the origins of this virus. And he seems to be justifying that approach. That's not how I remember it. I don't remember the Trump administration jumping right out in front of this thing and blaming Beijing for being recalcitrant. Uh, in fact, I remember the Trump administration kind of bending over backwards to avoid casting any aspersions on Beijing. And and Trump himself praised Xi for, you know, the incredible, fantastic things that they're doing to try to control the virus. There's a lot of retrospective rethinking of this. It wouldn't even matter to me if this guy hadn't cast himself as this truth teller to a fault. But he's he just shades and massages the truth to to suit his preferred narratives and only if you subordinate your 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 understanding of history like you all lived through it only if you just compartmentalize that do you avoid calling this guy out on his bs you know, it's bizarre I, I, I these days I, I certainly i'm not in the habit of counseling outrage um of, 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 in the general population but there is a disconnect, I think, between um, the level of public upset and the fact that this massive, complicated smokescreen has gone up around the question of the origin of this world-changing, uh, upheaval-causing uh, uh, pandemic. Um, and you know, John, something we you talk about a lot and, and written about is um, sort of the reckoning of huge events, how they don't happen necessarily on the uh, schedule you would expect or you don't see them in the ways that you would expect they don't manifest um as you would expect uh, namely the the 2008 financial uh crash and crisis and um i'm wondering if the, there's a there's a there's a sense of uh being unsettled that's going so deep uh, over uh, over this issue, over over the fact that we have absolutely no idea, and seem seem to, and it seems as if we will never will we will never have any su- significant sufficient idea about about the origins of this virus. I, I wonder in what ways that um, that that reckoning may or may not occur over the long term, and where. Well, the memory holding is very important because all of it, even though it's not conscious. It's not like people got together and said, here's what we need to do to make sure that this doesn't happen. But it is all about forestalling a reckoning. I mean, even if you want to look at it in its most benign fashion, it is we meant well. Our concern was to prevent death on a mass scale. And that's why we took these measures. And maybe they were too extreme and but we didn't know any better and what what we did what we knew at the time was the only way to do this and and you know to the extent that things went wrong you know it you have to look at the choices that we faced at the time right that is not what happened what happened in february of 2020 was that the entire liberal far from trump blaming the virus blaming china for the virus we were told that it was our moral and spiritual obligation to go to Chinatown and buy things from Chinese people in order to prevent there from being a xenophobic reaction to China because the virus had come out of Wuhan. That was Bill de Blasio. That was all over America. That was sort of liberal public opinion that we needed to forestall an American turn toward anti-Chinese xenophobia that preceded Trump 
and you know some spin that he got from Corey Lewandowski or some populist moron that we should call it the China virus, like that was somehow going to save him from you know from his own responsibilities and how he was going to manage it in the United States. And they want us to not remember. I, I don't know who they are, but this kind of weird liberal con- wants us to not remember this wants us to not remember that we were told not to wear masks that we were told not in and we're talking about at a point where theoretically proper masking could have made a difference because the virus really wasn't spreading and if masking really did work as a as a means of interrupting transmission those 6 weeks in which the public health establishment said do not wear masks were incredibly critical in allowing the original virus to spread we didn't do that. You know, Trump didn't do that. They did that. That was that was this public health world and this public health establishment. And yet we are going to know, you know, maybe we won't know for 10 years, but we're going to know this will be there will be an entire field of academic virological epidemiological study that will at some point be able to determine the origins of this virus and if it comes out that it is that the lab leak was the correct hypothesis, the fact that it was crushed under the boot of, you know, sustained conventional wisdom is going to be a landmark moment in how we understand how conventional wisdom needs to be checked by skepticism. Because, of course, the now the line is that conventional wisdom is skepticism. Conventional wisdom of this sort takes in skepticism. It is not, you know, does not follow it's science. And science has skepticism built into it as a as a as a matter of, you know, how we how we prove the scientific method. It starts with skepticism and then and then the skepticism is overturned by evidence. And this was, of course, entirely the opposite. So the hard sciences are becoming social science, which exists only to, yes. as Abe said the other day, churn out, uh, you know, jargon that justifies with some pseudo academic, uh, polysyllabic language, whatever the conventional wisdom is. You know, two precisely two years ago today, it was China had beaten the virus. Yeah, China had mastered well, we should, the virus, and that we, we should be we... emulating them in every sense of the way. Now you only have people like Taylor Lorenz saying we should emulate them because everybody should be free from COVID for the rest of their lives. But that was uh, the the conventional point of view in October of 2020. Can we can we just take a minute, Jim? I want you to, if you would, ventilate on this, which is here we are. Uh, it's almost December of 2022. We're in the, you know, I guess at the tail end I suppose, from what we're hearing, sort of the tail end of the Omicron virus. And one thing that we know about the Omicron virus, not just from anecdotal evidence, but just the general nature of it, is that it the um, the ability of the vaccines to impede the transmission of the Omicron virus are all but non-existent, or is all but non-existent. We just know this because people are getting it a third and fourth time. People who've been vaccinated four times are getting it. People who've had it and then get it can spread it to somebody else. Um, therefore, you know, we know in our own lives that whatever the vaccines are good at, and they're clearly good at mitigating the harm that is done to you individually, the vaccines no longer play a role in 
stopping the transmission of the virus. Or if they play a role, we don't know what the percentage is, but it's pretty low in terms of that. And yet Ashish Jha, the COVID coordinator at the White House, in that same moment that Fauci took his farewell tour at the White House podium, said, the best thing you can do to prevent transmission of the virus this holiday season is to get vaccinated. And that is a lie. Like it is, maybe it's not a lie because maybe he believes it. I don't know how he could believe it. But what do you make of this kind of like the fact that there is no improvisatory skill in saying you should get the booster, get the booster, get the booster, get the booster, because you'll get sick and this will make sure that your that your illness is much less and you know it's for your sake it's no longer for everybody else's sake but you because you can't make claims like that that people that don't ring true to people yeah in 2021 i wrote a piece for commentary about the overall failures of the public health system in COVID. And it was a pretty pessimistic take, and I've gotten just more pessimistic since then. But one of the things I said is that there was an impulse on the part of public officials for for two things. One is this idea that you can't be too careful. So if you exaggerate or you tell a white lie, if it's for it's in the service of safety, that's okay. And the other one is you can't trust the public. So you mentioned that, you know, the famous admonition that masks don't work in the early weeks of the pandemic. Well, of course they knew that masks work somewhat. That's why they needed, need, they wanted to save them for healthcare workers. And so instead of telling us, you know what, please don't buy masks. We need them for the hospitals. They didn't trust us. They thought, well, we'll just make up a little lie and that will, um, and you know, that, that will do the trick. We have seen that throughout the, throughout the pandemic. And even up to today, once we had a vaccine, the vaccine became the the pretty much the one and only that well not the only but the the main defense against the virus combined with you know lockdowns and and endless masking and when the effectiveness of the vaccine at reducing transmission redu was reduced by subsequent variants it's not zero i mean it still helps but it's nothing like it was in the early weeks of the virus, but they're afraid to let the public know that the situation has changed. So they they cling to the old story that this is your, your best defense against transmitting the virus, and it's your responsibility to get vaccinated, you know, keep getting boosters and stuff. Uh, and they start to sound like liars to people. They undermine their credibility because of this, this inability to be flexible. It's not just flexible, it's an inability to be honest. And to me, one of the biggest areas where you see uh, this failure is one that we haven't talked about as much, but that is the incredible resistance to acknowledging that COVID is airborne. It, very, very early on, there were uh, researchers around the world who knew a lot about airborne transmission of disease, but they weren't is ensconced in the public health agencies. They were warning about the fact that COVID was airborne, and they were pretty much shut down by um, by the CDC, WHO, and others as almost you know as cranks. To this day, the World Health Organization has a tweet up that that 
insists that COVID doesn't is not transmitted by air. It's only by droplets and touch. That's just completely not true. Why were they so resistant to updating their information or their recommendations as new information came in? And what it shows is a, a lack of the skeptical, self-correcting tendency that science is supposed to have, where you, new information comes in, you adjust, you change, you admit where you were wrong, you admit when situations change. None of that fits very well with the public health bureaucratic mentality. Even very well-intentioned people fall into this trap of not being comfortable admitting that things have changed or that they were wrong at first or that uh, the advice has to change. And I think we're going to pay a price for that for years or decades to come. The collapse of trust in experts and institutions is going to have a lot of really dangerous consequences. Can we talk about trusting the public? I want to talk about that right after we take this second break. Do you know only one in three Americans believes we can fully exercise our free speech rights? That's why FIRE is stepping up to protect freedom of expression for all Americans, no matter where you're from or what you believe. The Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE, knows free speech makes free people. FIRE will always be a principled, nonpartisan, nonprofit defender of your rights. Join the fight for free speech at www thefire.org. Okay, I'm looking at a chart here of the number of people in the United States who have been vaccinated. And do you want to talk about trusting the public? Because this chart actually provides us with a real sense of why the public should be trusted in aggregate, you know, the sort of the, you know, massification of stuff. Okay, so there have been 912 million doses of the vaccine distributed thus far. 79% uh, of the population of the United States, that's 263 million people, have received at least one dose. Overall, 225 million are considered fully vaccinated. Now, remember that there are 75 million people under the age of 18 COVID does not harm people under the age of 18, except in extreme cases, which we have, I think, 1,400 deaths now over almost three years in, in total. So if we exclude that, if we exclude those 75 million people, uh, we're at basically almost 90% or a little more than 90% of the population has been fully vaccinated. Additionally, 109 million people or 33% of the population has received a booster dose or more than one booster dose. Now, let's figure, I, I don't actually know what the number of people over the age of 65 is. I don't know if it's 100 million. But let's say over the age of 55, it's 100 million. I, I don't even know. So if you look at this, what you would say to yourself is that everybody who needs to get vaccinated properly has probably pretty much gotten that that there's a small population of people who will not get vaccinated and who will who have refused to do so but that mostly everybody else has gotten probably what they need from the vaccine from the numbers of, of the vaccine that they've done and we are sitting here with all of these authorities putting pressure on us they'll come up with another version and they'll want us to take another booster and another booster and another booster Wait. 
because the authorities don't look at it and say, oh, so it turns out you can trust the public. They look at it and say, we did it. We got we corralled these idiots. We got them to 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 take the shot despite all the forces ranged against us. Uh, we we pulled it off. But they don't think that because they still think that we're idiots because a hundred per that number isn't at a hundred percent. It's like the United Way drive at your at your employer. You know, if you don't, if you're if your division for your, you know, doesn't hit a hundred percent, then you know, then the boss calls and says, I thought we were gonna get full participation from your, you know, from your 25 person department. Uh, who isn't participating in the hundred percent? You know, it's got that that kind of like, you know, block commandant mentality that is also uh, present in 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 all of this. Um, so let's, you know, we asked Jim to come on last week with knowing Christine was gone because we wanted to talk about Elon Musk and Twitter, and then of course news intervened. So. Um, Jim has a really great piece in our current December issue called "Can Elon Musk." pull it off uh you wrote this let's say in the end of october yeah about it i mean you know just over a week after you've taken over the company so now i look right. at it and say like there's a lot more i'd like to add but i i i feel that my core uh concerns have been uh somewhat borne out okay uh so i want to just go to what Musk is actually doing. I mean, you have the kind of reaction to Musk, which is this kind of tap dancing on a grave that actually hasn't either been dug yet or hasn't been filled. Last week, everyone announced they were leaving Twitter. Twitter was going to die at you know midnight on Friday or whatever because all the engineers were fi being fired and think place couldn't run without them, whatever it was. And yet there it is. And Musk claims on Twitter that they're seeing levels of engagement they haven't seen in... You know, since I don't know, since the early days of the pandemic or something like that. But there's a simple hard fact, and we should serve the simple hard fact is he paid 40 to 50 billion dollars for it. He's personally liable for an enormous amount of that. Twitter has four or five billion dollars in revenue, has had at best, it had four or five billion dollars in revenue. How he is going to shoulder this burden that he has placed on himself, I still. There's no way the math. At, I mean, if, unless he unless he somehow produces ten times the amount of ad revenue while we're going into a massive ad recession, you know, he is going to be underwater, and then he's going to start having to sell his Tesla stock or lose Tesla in order to support this personal burden. So that's my practical thing. But you have a more spiritual question about the way musk is handling twitter right would you say or yeah kind of like, well yeah. i mean so i've i've covered musk for a long time i've met him i have enormous respect for for him and his accomplishments but he the guy worries me <laughs> because he's so erratic and um kind of untempered i had a really interesting conversation uh, a few weeks ago with a, a guy who worked for him at tesla for a long time in texas and he confirmed kind of my take is that trump is i mean excuse me trump it's a funny that that that, that there's a little yeah. bit of a similarity there sometimes that uh musk is is uh kind of ungoverned emotionally he's kind of childish or childlike in a lot of ways and that can get him into trouble he likes to tweak people he likes to troll people and and so 
that coexists with his his brilliance as an engineer. And one thing he likes to do is set himself and his team just impossible goals. So he gets hit a lot for making promises about how soon you know Teslas are going to be entirely self-driving or when the next launch of the you know uh, next generation of a SpaceX rocket is going to happen or something and he'll come into a division and say okay you guys are working on this project it's supposed to be done in a year and a half no you're going to do it in nine months and and they are no we can't do it in nine months but they do get it done sooner than they would have and he loves to create this kind of pressure then he'll go public and promise the public they're going to achieve this goal and then they don't quite hit it but they still do more than probably any other entrepreneur would have gotten done in that time period so with twitter he set himself the ultimate unattainable challenge you know meeting these interest payments and raising profitability of this company in this short time frame looks to all of us on the outside as as pretty impossible i would not want to predict whether or not he can pull it off but i am happy to see that all of the the uh the the kind of schadenfreude-ish uh delight that people were saying like look twitter's gonna collapse in a steaming digital heap it still seems to be going strong doesn't mean that when you when you gut the uh the the teams that run a complex organization that problems couldn't still emerge you know you lose institutional knowledge uh who's got the key to the the closet where they keep the you know the backup um files or something they a lot could still go wrong but uh, but i'm i'm happy to see that the worst naysayers aren't um aren't aren't you know their predictions aren't coming true but i'm i i continue to be concerned that that musk is is making more trouble for, he's taken off on more than can reasonably expected to be, you know that he can a- accomplish and he's also sowing the seeds of, of trouble for himself with all of his constant trolling of politicians and and regulatory agencies and everyone else who would just love nothing more than to start meddling around with, with his his Twitter acquisition. I feel like he succumbed to the worst temptation of public figures today, which is to go ahead and become the 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 person that the people who hate you say you are, you know, um, that is that is we see it over. We see it to, to people that we thought were uh, admirable. We see it to people that we didn't expect much from. We see it on the left. We see it on the right. We see it in. Uh, politics and we see it in 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 business and he has done that by by incessantly trolling um in the exact ways that uh, uh his his enemies would would had accused him of doing okay i want to just offer a quick qualified defense of what musk is up to not that i again i don't understand how this ends up in anything but a disaster for him financially but you know i what do i know i'm just like looking at the kind of like the most basic arithmetic and subtraction it did, which is about as, as strong as my math skills are. Um, but uh, there is something entrancing about what's going on. It also gets to the conventional wisdom stuff, which is he he has been behaving in a wildly unconventional fashion since this whole I'm going to buy Twitter you know, thing started. And as now the proprietor of Twitter, he is like a guy sitting 
uh, you know, at the register of the record store, like Jack Black in High Fidelity, insulting people or teasing them, making fun of them as they come up with their record to buy the record. And uh, but engaging with them, being in this weird. Now, he's like the CEO of three major American companies, a major media company a major car company and a major space exploration company. And he is sitting there in the front of the record store saying, I wouldn't do that. If I, I wouldn't buy that record, if I were you, that one sucks, you know, that it is. And he is trying in some personal way to increase engagement. He runs these polls, whether who should come on and come back. It all seems like dancing or, you know, like playing on the deck of the Titanic to me, but he's up to something interesting and the world of conventional opinion is like, he's just, uh, I, how dare he not run this business the way he should be running it. Like they care how he runs it. Nobody cares anymore. It's not publicly traded. It's now a privately held company. He can do whatever he wants with it. If he goes belly up, he goes belly up. Something's going on there. And there's so much like, as you said, like, like um, perspective schadenfreude that nobody is paying attention to it. Now, maybe there's no point in paying attention to it, but I'm paying attention. I was, I, I, this, I, partially, this is personal because people may know that my nephew, Noam Bloom, who works at Tablet, uh, you know, is one of the great am amateur Twitter, like to tweeters. Like he started tweeting 2009, 2010. His Twitter name is Neon Taster. He has, I don't know, 150, 160,000 followers totally organically. And he and he's a very brilliant guy, and he dis, he realized that all these people were tweeting exactly the same thing about Musk and something that Musk was doing, Alexander Vindman, and that he got like, and then he assembled like twenty tweets. Somebody had decided that everybody should tweet out the same thing about how it's terrible that one person is running this public forum, and maybe something should be done about it. And then he just assembled all of them and said, what is this, a Russian bot or something? Or he said, you know, oh, look, it's like a bot. And then Musk responded to him and said, this is like Russian bots. That's interesting. Like, Noam is, doesn't have 3 million followers. You know, he has 150,000. Now, they're real. They're juicy followers. They're good followers. And Musk is right to engage. That, he is exactly the kind of person that he needs on Twitter to make Twitter vivid and lively and jumping. But, you know, he needs 5 million of them and he can't engage with 5 million people individually. But he's doing something really fascinating from a business point of view. When have you ever seen a CEO interact directly with customers or users in that way. And he's been doing this almost from day one. When he first took over the company, people were throwing out suggestions. Uh, Zuby, the uh, a guy with a huge account, British kind of libertarian-ish uh, thought leader. He said, well, there should be better ways for big people with big followings to monetize instead of having to send everybody over to you, our YouTube channel to make any money. And Elon said, yeah, good idea. I'm looking into it. Or people would say, what, what about this person who was dropped? It, yeah, we're looking into it. It's really kind of exciting and cool to see an executive, uh, you know, be being willing to kind of get out there and use the platform the way it was 
kind of built to be used to exchange high-low interactions. One thing I love about Twitter is it allows people at any level to talk back to big shots, you know, and he's kind of going the other way. He's saying, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, it's not just anybody. Obviously he can't do that, but it kind of, it's kind of expressive form. Like Twitter is a vehicle for communication. And if you have good ideas, I'm open to to hearing them. The the downside, and I'm always a little bit of a worry ward on these things. The downside is it makes him personally accountable for every decision. It's like, oh, this person should come back on. And then if somebody else isn't, somebody else's account isn't reinstated, it's like, well, that must be Musk's personal decision. He's not showing the sign that he's got any kind of capable team that he can delegate to. And that might make it easier for him to get embroiled in every little tiny dispute over decisions that Twitter makes when, you know, a more cautious executive would provide a little insulation from that. Uh, Let me take a break here and talk to you about the holidays and gifting and why you should look to Bolin Branch, the company you've heard about so much on this podcast uh, that makes these wonderful buttery soft finest 100% or gotten organic cotton threads on earth sheets. Uh, Noah, you are a Bolin Branch user. Why don't you tell people why they should own Bolin Branch sheets the way you do? Uh, because they work. This is the primary thing that you should buy products for because they work. And if you want a good night's sleep, you will get Bolin Branch sheets. Yesterday was kind of a rainy day on the East Coast and everybody in our, my house was just kind of relaxing after a pretty long weekend of holiday fair and my youngest decided to park himself in in our bed and just couldn't get him out of the thing now maybe that's not a selling point if you don't want your little kid in your bed all day long but that's where he was and i just couldn't even drag him out of there in and out of sleep uh, i was very jealous but that is uh you know if i had my druthers that's where i would have spent my day yesterday too so look uh these products are made different so you can sleep better at night or if you're you Noah's. Know, uh, youngest you sleep better during the day made from those finest 100 percent organic cotton threads on earth free from toxins pesticides and harsh chemicals made by artisans who are the pan respect they deserve and here's the thing their signature sheets come wrapped and ready in a beautiful holiday gift box if you want to give them for the holidays as your end of year gift your Christmas gift, your Hanukkah gift, whatever, the gifts will look as special as they feel and you get an unboxing experience your loved ones will never forget. So this Cyber Monday, give a better night's sleep to everyone on your list with Bolin Brand Sheets. Get 25% off site-wide plus free shipping when you use promo code commentary at bolinbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com. Promo code commentary. Offer ends December 4th. Um, I suppose before we go, we should talk a little about Trump at Mar-a-Lago with Kanye West and Nick Fuentes. Um, Nobody needs to give me or us a lecture on Trump's footsie with vile anti-Semites and uh, the scum and refuse of, you know, of uh, the lowest dregs of the Internet. This has been a feature of the rise of Trump since 2015. He turned over a rock. It turned out that turning over a rock was not a political catastrophe the way one had hoped it would have been back then. 
I think it has over time become a political catastrophe for him and the slow roll of the three lost elections. The losing continues as we go on here. His two candidates in Alaska, Sarah Palin and Kelly Tsubaha, lost to Mary Patolta, a Democrat, and to Lisa Murkowski, the sitting Republican, uh, in the uh, you know in the Alaska Senate race. Um, I don't think things are looking that great for Herschel Walker. The early we now have basically what appears to be a twenty-five to you know twenty-five to one. Uh, early vote preference for Raphael Warnock in the early going. It's like 50,000 to 2,000 early votes in wh whichever county is where the counties are where there's early vote because Republicans are again being psychotic about not voting early. And, you know, also the, some of these counties are closed up and won't let people vote because they subscribe to this demented religious idea that you shouldn't somehow vote it's unholy to vote early and uh and so that i think that's that's ongoing stands to re so i like i say he's disgusting he shouldn't be the head of the republican Party. he shouldn't run in 2024 if he runs in 2024 he should be defeated this is a ongoing pattern with him it's despicable but this constant effort to spread the blame for his behavior to Republicans who are not responsible for his behavior, to other Republicans who are who are wrestling with how to handle the ph Trump phenomenon. And the idea is stand against him and stand athwart him and all of that. And I, I, I think that's probably the right strategy, but the strategy of maybe letting him explode in public without any kind of a feeding of the explosion so that you, you know, you somehow don't give him some kind of a life raft to go against to pull them themselves up in in response to you seems to me an arguable proposition politically but i just think in general it's like trump's done something foul he's foul he traffics with foul people and then people who are not his keeper and not his brother and therefore aren't his don't stand as his brother's keeper like ron desantis shouldn't be blamed because trump had lunch at mar-a-lago or had a meal at Mar-a-Lago with this repugnant anti-Semite, Nick Fuentes, or his psychotic, schizophrenic, you know, uh, enabler, Kanye West. I, I think especially, John, at this moment, um, that is the right thing to do is um, sort of uh, uh, let, let, let Trump sort of dig his own grave here, because he is flailing in a way consistently that we haven't seen him uh, uh, flail in um, since he since he first ran. I mean, it's sort of he's sort of racking up a lot of losses here in in, in various ways, and um, the only thing um, that that would come of a very vocal attack on him from the right um, would be the chance for him to gather some defenders around him, build back up that core. Um, get back get get the get the grievance machine rolling again uh and and really start to make inroads maybe but i don't think that's what we're seeing i think we're seeing cowardice uh it would be a defensible proposition if if this wasn't just the latest uh, a, a time at which trump seems very vulnerable and maybe we should just allow him to self-destruct i mean only 
if you are just forget how the last three or four times that went, that it entropically it doesn't end with Trump self-destructing. It does need a push. And I think the fact that we're only seeing it from certain people who've been road testing anti-Trump messages for a while, a la Chris Christie, or people who never had any use for him in the first place in the Republican Party are talking, are speaking up about it, is just personal advantage seeking. And if we were to see a more concerted effort, there would be some in the Republican Party with, you know, ranking titles of federal office holders, perhaps people with ambition who would say, well, there's a big open area here to be a little less concerned about that. Oh, this is what the liberal media wants you to do. Dance to their tune by calling these people out. And we've seen this dynamic a hundred times. Uh, I just think if you keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results, we're not going to see them. Uh, there, There is an opening here for a, a party that does actually want to move on from Trump. And if they did, They'd get rid of uh, Ronald Romney McDaniel. They would get rid of uh, of Donald Trump's uh, utility because he is politically useful to them. This may be something I'm writing on a little bit. The worst possible thing you can be in this business is naive, not wrong. Being wrong, there are no consequences for being wrong. And being naive is a problem. And there are a lot of people who saw the 2016 results when Donald Trump managed to secure all of 46% of the popular vote, have perfectly distributed votes in three very critical states, win the presidency and say, aha, Hillary Clinton was wrong. Hillary Clinton was right. Donald Trump has surrounded himself with deplorables. Maybe she got the calculation wrong, the exact percentage of them, but he has cultivated and surrounded himself with some of the most wretched refuse this country has to offer. And he does it intentionally and deliberately. And the fact that he's getting away with it means he'll continue to get away with it. Well, I guess that's the question. That, that, that's, this is where the debate between you and, and Abe, you know, sort of like there's no answer because we don't know that he's getting away with it. I don't know what it means for him to get away with it. We don't know what the circumstances are. Abe says he won't get away with it, that he should just be allowed to sink into the tar pits. And you're saying he needs to be pushed into the tar pits. And I, I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know what the answer is here. Um, I do know that it's hilarious to be lectured uh, by by Chris Christie, who if you know things had gone differently for Chris Christie and he hadn't and Jared Kushner hadn't decided that he needed to punish Chris Christie for the actual perfectly defensible thing that Chris Christie did to his father who hired uh who hired someone to put his own brother-in-law in a honey trap so that he could have advantage in a family financial dispute um and therefore went to jail which was what he should have been and Jared Kushner should be thankful that his father went to jail and didn't have another hitman come and shoot him dead for what he did um Chris Christie might have been White House chief of staff he was designing the transition for Trump. He was the first major person to endorse Trump after dropping out in the primaries. So his role in Trump's rise is not inconsequential. And it's nice to know that his ever-shifting allegiances are as you know immutable as the traffic patterns on the way to the George Washington Bridge. But that's the thing, is that, what you, as you're saying, what we're seeing are, are tactics, really transparent. Yeah. Advantage seeking on the part of everybody who's participating in this dance, which is if you're morally outraged, as I am, um, that's not what this moment requires. Damn your tactics. I totally disagree, because when when doing the right thing becomes the tactical thing, that's that's your best shot at it happening. Not not because it's the moral thing. Again, I feel like we would have seen that in the last three weeks. The window has been open. 
Well, I mean, it's but, early yet. The right, th- I mean, the, obviously this this gets down to the fundamental disagreement, <laughs> but I think the right thing is to ignore him. That That is moving beyond Trump. Um, uh, Trump's strength is engaging with him. That is that is it. Negatively, especially. You know, this may I think be a problem a... with the blog post I'm writing uh, later today. No, but no, but <laughs> this is an interesting point because, um, you know, Biden is marching forward, right? He says he's not going to change anything because the uh, you know because the 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 midterms weren't as bad for Democrats as everybody had thought they were going to be, and now there's you know no one's going to contest for the presidency and all of that and so if the you know to the extent that the political conversation revolves around trump and trump's bad behavior and not around the biden administration and the democrats and what they're up to then you're basically serving biden's interests and you're not you know you're 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 doing you're 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 doing the lord's work for biden which is why everybody wants the republican party and other people who are not who did nothing we're not involved in an invitation to Kanye West and Nick Fuentes to have dinner at Mar-a-Lago with the ex-president of the United States is now somehow complicit in the dinner. You know, and again, I one one more thing. I just I don't feel like getting lectures from a party that doesn't censure Ilhan Omar on anti-Semitism. I mean, it's that simple. I don't want to both sides of this, but she is a member of Congress and said disgusting things, and the Democratic Party in the House met to censure her and did not do so. So any of those people who wouldn't vote for Ilan Omar's censure opens a mouth, their mouth should be sewn shut. That's all I'm saying. Like if you're, if you're situationally opposed to anti-Semitism because it's of it's in your political interest to oppose it at some points, but not at others, the hell with you is all I have to say. And I'm sorry, but uh, Jim, you haven't gotten in here. Maybe you don't want to talk. It's fine. But, you know, <laughs> then you're complicit. Yeah. Well, that's the game that the media and others want to play with Republicans always. I've got a very good friend who often will text me the latest outrage of some, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene or some marginal Republican. And his point is basically, how can you defend these people? And I, I want to respond, you know, I don't defend Marjorie Taylor Greene. I've got nothing to do with her. Uh, but his view, and I think this is the way the press works, is it's a kind of contagion. It's the entire party is corrupted by this. And and I, I get the logic of that. But uh but the, you can't if you're in any way associated with the party itself, then you are also contaminated by this. And the, so the press always every time one of these incidents happens, they always want to go to every single other Republican and say, why haven't you condemned this or that? And I think it's it's great if people want to uh, condemn, you know, it's not too hard to condemn Nick Fuentes. but. I sympathize with Republicans, especially somebody like Ron DeSantis, who has his hands full (laughs) running one of the most important states in the country. Why should he be obligated to go on the record, you know, every time Trump says or does something stupid? Why play that game of saying, yes, you're right, it's a contagion and we all have to, um, you know, we all have to speak up on it. You know, 
I think that is, as I say, if 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 you want to speak up and make an issue out of this, that's great. But I I I understand why some politicians don't want to be, you know, obligated to be held responsible for everything Trump does. Can I just say that Jim speaks uh, from uh, deep personal experience? He 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 comes from the mainstream media he is not you know like me he's a bit of a refugee from the mainstream media worked at entertainment weekly the editor of popular mechanics this is not you know some he's not some outs out you know outsider shooting into the you know to, to the circle but but a but a but a rueful veteran of the yeah. wars yeah i mean you know the nice thing about being a popular mechanics was that it was such a may i mean it was in a way it was um a, a good preparation for the uh, recent era when we realized that a lot of people who don't get talked to by the New York Times actually are pretty important in our country. You know, our audience was very diverse, very mainstream. And uh, and I had a nice feeling that I could speak to those. Like, I wasn't freaked out that one of my readers would have a, a pickup truck with a gun rack in it. You know, <laughs> the way that almost every single other person I know in the media business would have been horrified <laughs> with that with that prospect. But but yeah, I think people who haven't worked in the mainstream media, even real critics would be surprised by how how much people think and work in lockstep and it's not a conspiracy it, you know they don't get together and plan all this it's but it's just a natural assumption that uh that we're all the good people we're all on the same side we all know who the bad people are and that's why you see people like you know smart moderates like barry weiss getting driven out of of mainstream media all over the place Anyway, Jim, thank you so much for joining us in Christine's stead, in your own stead. Uh, please, everybody, uh, read Jim's piece, Can Elon Musk Pull It Off, in the December 2022 issue of Commentary, now available online at commentary.org. And, of course, probably in your mailbox today, tomorrow, or Wednesday, uh, if you are a physical subscriber to the book, we will be back tomorrow for Abe and Noah in the absent Christine. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.